a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Today on People Worth Knowing, I talk to a man who discusses his journey to becoming a lawyer and how entrepreneurship plays a role in being a lawyer. I also realized that in a marketing scheme, a lot of times the things that I would want to do, I would kind of need to be the face of it because when people call the office, if they knew me, they want to speak to Johnny or they want to speak to somebody that's connected to Johnny. Them knowing that Johnny had a boss sometimes would be a wall between us. I also discussed the life and decisions of a man who was at one point the richest man on earth, Bill Gates. All that today on People Worth Knowing. Welcome, you're listening to People Worth Knowing, a podcast about the noteworthy, iconic public figures who have shaped our society, brands, communities, and major companies with their thoughts, opinions, decisions, and views. Each episode, we explore how these men and women started from nothing and rose to the top. If you're listening for the first time, thanks for joining us. And now, People Worth Knowing with your host, Nick Harrison. Welcome to the People Worth Knowing podcast. I'm your host, Nick Harrison. I'm joined today by Johnny Finch. Johnny is a lawyer and entrepreneur who discusses his work as a minority in the legal profession. He is also author of the book, Black Lawyer Confidential, and there is a link to his book in the show notes. Welcome, Johnny. Thanks, Nick. I'm happy to be here. So simply put, what is your story? Well, small town guy. Um, come from a town in North Carolina called Elizabeth City where everyone knows everybody. Um, everybody pretty much knows everybody's mom. Uh, everybody's related. If you're not related, then you probably dated the person or they've dated the next person. There's about zero degrees of separation. Um, I went from high school to college all in the same place and then um, about 10 years after undergrad I decided to go to law school in Virginia Beach um, which was a total shock for me because um, where I'm from there's probably there's a southern culture and then there's um, a middle class but once I got to reach university I was for the first time faced with people who have very very conservative views and I, I consider myself conservative and also very, very rich and astute people. So it was a culture shock. And from there, I went into law practice. So I practice in North Carolina right now, primarily criminal defense. What inspired you to be a lawyer and an entrepreneur? Well, um, I was actually at the Department of Juvenile Justice for North Carolina. I worked with troubled teenagers for about seven years after undergrad. 
my major was criminal justice. After that seven years, I found myself in a good place in that I was able to understand family dynamics with juveniles, seeing the, the, the crimes that they were committing, being able to bond with them. I myself came from a two-parent household that was stable. A lot of these children came from backgrounds of not having any parents, maybe having one grandparent, maybe having a grandmother, maybe having a father or jump from house to house, or maybe they came from a stable two-parent home. But it was something about that particular child's individual situation that made them make a decision that they made and they ended up locked up. And so I was able to get a good connection with them, not thinking about going to law school at that time. And then when I felt like I had pretty much maxed out my potential there and I was happy for that opportunity, the idea just kind of came to me one day. My dad was in the mall. He met a judge and they both approached me and thought I should try law school. And so I studied for the test and the next thing I know, 10 years later, here I am. I've always heard that to become a lawyer is quite difficult passing the exam, going to just the schooling in itself. Is that true? Is it hard? I would say that uh, undergrad can be difficult depending on where you go. I would compare law school to some type of mental and physical war. So to say hard would be for me was an understatement because it was a totally new environment. It was totally new people and it was totally new material. And you didn't know what questions to ask. Usually in school, you know what questions to ask. It's kind of one of those places where you kind of just dropped off in the middle and you have to figure your way out. The good thing about it is when you master that concept, you can use it over and over and over and over again. So that's the beauty of law school. But it's much more than hard and it was definitely definitely much more than hard for me. Why did you decide to write a book about becoming a black lawyer? Well, I was already black. By culture, anyway. And once I started law school, I began journaling because a lot of my experiences were brand new. A lot of the people were brand new. A lot, and again, all the material was brand new. And I knew at that time because I was having so many troubles adjusting. Normally, I can adjust in my environment very, very quickly. I wouldn't feel confident in myself for the very first time. I was faced with task after task after task, and all of these things going on at the same time, I felt compelled to write it down because at the same I was working overnight and I would go home and I would do my homework and I didn't necessarily have anybody that I could talk to in my personal circle that I trusted with this information. So I started journaling in my book every night about the good and the bad things about law school and not even thinking about a book. And then once I actually got into that law practice, I saw a lot of the things from law school were trickling over into law practice. I was able to use a lot of those skills that I learned and put them into law practice. And so I started writing the book, Black Lawyer Confidential. A lot of it is about one as an African-American being the minority in the profession and how you have to face it. Two, it's about any, I think anyone who's just ever been in a totally unique situation trying to find their way. And three, there is a, a side of the legal profession that is, not seen and and not necessarily good or evil, but there are things that we deal with that I felt like if I was able to get a heads up to the next generation of lawyers, whether they were white or black, it could give them an eye into what they would be seeing. And so that's why I decided to write it. And it, so it pretty much took me five years to write, but over the course of five years, maybe three weeks. What tips would you give any minority that is entering the law profession? 
I would find someone who's done it. I would find someone who's currently in law school or newly out of law school, maybe a young lawyer, to help you get the information that you need. And then when it's time to, to take the bar, obviously you want to get with uh, the right individuals who are going to help you get the, the information that you need to pass the bar. And then whoever you find, whoever you can find in the law community, community that's similarly situated. So it's all, it's always important to find another African American who can help you navigate through the situation. But it's equally important to have to cross train your mentors and have I have a lot of white lady mentors, a lot of white man mentors because the, that part of the game is just as equally as important as what my um, black counterparts can can teach me. So I would say. You want a, a, a wide variety of mentors who you can reach out to and people who, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're always, you know, there, you're always asking questions, they know they've been through it. They don't want to see anybody go through what most of us had to go to. And so they're going to give you that information. So, some, so find somebody you can always be reaching out to. How has your experience been practicing law as a minority? There's a couple of different relationships that I have to manage. Um, the first one came a little bit easier to me because I initially started practicing in my own uh, hometown. And so a lot of the people already knew a lot of people, whether they were white or black, again, the culture was the same. They knew me and I was able to service them because I understood where they were coming from and what was going on. And then the second relationship is, of course, with other lawyers. And in our locality, again, it's um, very, very Southern. They welcomed me and that was fine. And then the third um, was with the judges. It was pretty good rapport, but where you always have to kind of be careful with is if you're in the middle of a jury trial, you have to make sure that the dynamics between yourself, your client, the judge and opposing counsel makes sense for your client. So if we're picking a jury and obviously my client is sitting beside me and he happens to be African-American, I'm African-American, maybe the prosecution team, is all white. Maybe the judge is all white, and all the judicial figure, all the judicial officers in court are white as well. I need to be able to make the jury feel comfortable with the fact that my client is black, and we're here, and he's going to assert his right here today, and also be able to catch cues from individuals who I might need to remove from that jury. And also, I need to take into account that as my client sits there, um, hopefully he's presenting himself well, but I need to do all I can to create a situation where people want to give them the nod. So from peer to peer is generally pretty good because most lawyers realize it's a hard route. So nobody really wants to give other people a hard time. Now, older lawyers across the board, most of the time, there's kind of like a hazing phase. But for the most part, it's just, you know, dealing with the client base that you relate to. And then when you go to court, making sure that the judges understand your style, they understand that you're not trying to disrespect the court. They understand that you're not trying to showboat. If they give you a little hand, you can take the hand. But the main thing is being comfortable and realizing who you are when you're going into the situation and creating a space for everybody to breathe. And that's what I always try to do. And I think whether you're white or black or, or whatever culture you come from, you just got to realize who you are going into different situations. If I'm arguing a case on one side of the state, as an African-American, I may argue it totally different on the other side of the state, depending on what the dynamics of that locality are. And these are the things that come along with being a, a good lawyer is knowing, knowing who you're talking to, knowing your audience and knowing who you're communicating with. Is there any part of 
the proceedings in a courtroom that you, as a lawyer with experience, still find intimidating? Well, I kind of like to refer to law practice in the courtroom as war again. So certainly, if I had the opportunity to think about it, I may feel a bit, a little bit nervous or intimidated. But when you get dropped dropped off in the middle of a war field, you're trying to live. <laughs> you're trying to make sure your client is surviving, so you don't have time to be nervous. When I was in law school, whenever we would do exercises or moot court exercises where we would go in and we would argue our case and we would get an A, B, C, D grade on that. It was all about me. And so I always did bad on those because I was trying too hard to be perfect and I was trying hard to exhibit what my, my teachers and my professors wanted me to show them. And if, and because it was all about my grade, I was very nervous and I did really bad on it. But my first time at trial, I realized that a person's life was at stake and I didn't have time to be nervous. All I knew was I needed to be confident in what I was doing in my preparation so that my client could relax a little bit and he would give me the room to do what I need to do was do a good job for him. So you just don't have time to think about it, especially if, you know, if the jury comes back and they're going to say your client is going to go to prison for 15, 20 years. Absolutely no time for nerves. Absolutely no time to even really think about yourself and how you look anyway. So, I mean, it's it's ball game. Johnny, is it ever discouraging when you lose a case? The the worst feeling in the world is when a, a jury comes back and says your client is guilty and they have to go to prison. It's even worse if your client wasn't fully informed about the risk that they were taking. And those were some lessons that I had to learn earlier on when we were going through the case and I was telling them the strengths and weaknesses of, of their case. Maybe I wouldn't focus so much on what could happen to them if they lost because I was focusing too much on what they wanted to hear about the strength of their case. And so what I, over time, what I learned to do was have two separate conversations. One is about how strong their case is or how weak their case is. And then two separate and aside is what happens if the jury says you're guilty? What will the judge do? What happens if the judge comes back and says you're not guilty? You walk home. When my client is fully informed and, and is willing to take that risk, then if the, if the jury comes back and says they're guilty, I'll feel bad, but at least I knew that they were willing to take the risk. Now, I've been blessed that all the situations where my clients were found guilty, nobody's ever had to do more than three or four months. Now, that three or four months, I couldn't sleep because there, there was some things that happened during the trial that I felt like now I could have done differently looking back. And so when I was in the grocery store and I learned that my client was out, I was thrilled when I saw him because he came up and he, he gave me a hug. He would say, you know, I'm so happy that you fought so hard for me in court, even though he had just been in jail for the last four months. So to answer that question, you just you fully inform your client, but, you know, it hurts when they lose. But there's a great joy to when someone is, when when the jury says not guilty and you feel you feel like your client actually had nothing to do with, it, you know, so that's that's another feeling. Right. Well, we've talked about the law side of this. How hard is the business side of this? So, and they go hand in hand, I understand. But how hard, what, what was the battle or what was the journey that you took to becoming an entrepreneur, separate from, from a lawyer? So I started working for a small firm straight out of law school. It was myself and two other lawyers. And it was an eat what you kill situation. So if I didn't bring in clients, I didn't get paid. 
Um, and so after about two years, I realized about what I was able to bring in. I looked at the numbers and I realized what I was paying the firm that I was working for, I could easily run a firm for myself and have money off to the side if I just opened my own shop. So about two years and six months into working for that firm, I started thinking about ways that I could open up my own shop. Um, the reason why I wanted to do that was because I worked for a, a very, very nice young lady and we have a good relationship. I have a good relationship with family, family and friends. Now she was white and she practiced a lot of family law. I am African-American and I practiced a whole lot of criminal defense. So a lot of our marketing just didn't fit together um, because the masses that she was trying to reach was totally different from the masses that I was trying to reach. Sure. I also I also realized that in a marketing scheme, a lot of times the things that I would want to do, I would kind of need to be the face of it because when people call the office, if they knew me, they want to speak to Johnny or they want to speak to somebody that's connected to Johnny. Them knowing that Johnny had a boss sometimes would be a wall between us. And so I had to, in effect, open myself up more so to the community because they already felt comfortable with me based off the years and years I've been in. I've been in town and my mom and my dad and my uncles and my aunts have been in town. So I saw the I saw opening for doing that. I knew what I was going to bring in each month based off of what I'd done the two previous years. And, and I saw that that third year, if I had to stay at that firm, I would have made an astronomical amount of money for them. So I decided that it was best for me to go out on my own. And as far as managing, I mean, it's two, two totally different hats. I can go and I can win a jury trial today. My client can go home. We can, or I can win a civil trial today. We can win a whole lot of money. But if I don't pay that light bill yesterday, when I come back, <laughs> they're gonna cut my lights out, or they'll cut the internet off. I gotta make sure payroll is right. And as a small firm, you gotta take care of all of those things, not unless you have the the staff that you can afford. And generally, what you try to do is you try to do as much as you can by yourself in the beginning, without wearing yourself out or using the resources that you have. So. It's two things that are equally important, um, as well as marketing the business side with the money and then with actual law side, making sure that your law product, product is good. And eventually anybody who opens their own firm every year, once they see the profits become good, they should be putting themselves in a situation where they're not having to wear so many hats or they can uh, they can get a consultant, maybe a, a accountant consultant, or maybe they can get a family member to come in and answer the phones. Maybe they can get another person, another lawyer in after a while to maybe that they can teach along the way so that the, the, the road is not so tough. But yes, it's, it's definitely tough, but it's very fulfilling at the same time. Well, Johnny, where can people find you online, whether it's social media or just the internet? On Facebook, I'm Johnny Finch, J-O-H-N-N-I-E. And on Twitter, I'm Cool Relaxed. On Instagram, I'm Cool Relaxed as well. The book's website is blacklawyerconfidential.com. Well, Johnny, I appreciate your time. And as a lawyer, you have my respect. And so you are now on the list of our people worth knowing. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Nick. As a child, Microsoft founder Bill Gates had two favorite games. One was Monopoly, where players compete to dominate the marketplace. The other was the game Risk, where the aim is to conquer the world. 
As an adult, Gates achieved both. With his Microsoft Windows operating system, he not only became the world's richest man, but also touched virtually every aspect of virtually everyone's daily life. Gates' fortune, which at one point topped 100 billion U.S. dollars, is indeed staggering. But perhaps even more staggering is the extent to which Bill Gates' nearly ambiguous technology forever transformed the way people access and process information, do their work, watch movies, listen to music, and even perceive and understand the world around them. Bill Gates has dominated the marketplace, surely, but he's also conquered every corner of the world, and he's done that not solely through technological progress and innovative engineering, but perhaps most critically by paying attention to companies and people's needs. Gates spotted gaps in the marketplace and openings in the technological landscape that no one else saw, and he did whatever it took to fill them. Bill Gates, born to an affluent family, showed an early aptitude for technology. As a student at the prestigious Lakeside School in Seattle, he had the opportunity to write code on a local company's computer through the school's teletype link, and by that time he was 15. He and a fellow student, Paul Allen, had made over $20,000 with their traffic flow measurement program, TrafoData. Even in those early days of primitive computing, Bill Gates was mesmerized by the infinity of possibilities that the new technology could present. When Gates began as a student at Harvard in 1973, then his mind was always elsewhere. He later admitted that he preferred playing video games as to going to class. But Bill Gates' focus, while not necessarily on his academic pursuits, remained laser-like. And when in 1974 he read a magazine article about the MITS Altair 8800, the world's first microcomputer, he lit up. He and his longtime friend Paul Allen immediately called MITS to pitch an Altair-compatible version of the basic computing language. MITS's president said he'd like to see it. There was only one problem. Bill Gates and Paul Allen hadn't written anything yet. They started working around the clock in Harvard's computer lab. They didn't have access to an Altair 8800, so they simulated the environment on Harvard's computers. When the two had completed the coding, Paul Allen flew to MIT's headquarters in Albuquerque to test it on the Altair, which absolutely had no idea whether or not their code would actually work on the microcomputer. But it did work, and the die was cast. Bill Gates dropped out of Harvard, and he and Paul Allen officially founded Microsoft with the stated intention of putting a computer in every home and on every desktop. It wasn't long before Bill Gates spotted an opportunity, a gap to be filled, a need to be satisfied. In 1979, Bill Gates learned that IBM was looking for an operating system for its new personal computer. In stepped Bill Gates with Microsoft Disk Operating System, DOS. The base of the software came from a small Seattle firm's already existing operating system, which Bill Gates had purchased for $50,000. But Gates developed it into a brand new 16-bit computer operating system. The genius of Gates' IBM deal, though, was not the operating system itself. Bill Gates saw even then that this kind of software could have been a huge number of applications in endless contexts, applications that could never be realized if it was simply gobbled up exclusively by IBM. 
So Gates, in a groundbreaking move that shifted the paradigm in the technological marketplace, insisted that IBM license rather than purchased Microsoft Disk Operating System, with Microsoft retaining the right to license it to other companies. IBM agreed, and when copycats began releasing clones of IBM's PC, Microsoft was able to license Microsoft Disk Operating System to run on those computers as well. Gates not only made a fortune with his subsequent licensing, with Microsoft sales growing from $7 million in 1980 to $16 million in 1981, but also held fast to Microsoft's dream of meeting everyone's needs, not just the needs of one client. Gates was making a business of filling demand for the corporate actors in the fast-changing computing landscape of the early 1980s, but it wasn't until 1984 that he set his sights on the ultimate target consumers. When he announced that Microsoft was developing an operating system with a graphical user interface, Gates was making a bold statement. Microsoft is going to change the way people everywhere interact with technology. Other companies had previously developed sleek, easy-to-use graphical user interfaces, Apple, for instance, with the Macintosh, but Gates knew that Microsoft's uniquely flexible business could put out software that would far exceed the scope of Apple's hardware-restricted operating system. Indeed, because of Microsoft's licensing strategy, Bill Gates could launch a product with truly global reach, a product that could be licensed to run on any computer and that could work in any hands, a product that could change personal computing for everyone. Gates called the product Windows, after the rectangular windows used to display content on the screen. It suffered at first from the technological hiccups and slow sales, but Gates didn't give up on it. And by the mid-1990s, Microsoft's operating system was selling a million copies per month and running on 85% of the world's computers. Windows had become the window through which overwhelming majority of computer users saw the view digital world. It hadn't just dominated the market, it had conquered the globe. Gates' awareness of people's needs doesn't end at the computer screen. When he stepped down as the Microsoft chairman in 2014, Bill Gates announced that he would be focusing full-time on his charitable work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, whose broad mission is to improve the quality of life for people around the world, particularly with respect to global health and learning. Gates has given over $40 billion of his personal wealth to the foundation, and in many ways, this astonishing philanthropy reflects the same instinct that allowed Gates to build Microsoft into a juggernaut and amass his fortune in the first place, the instinct to pay attention to people's needs and to do anything it takes to fill them. Bill Gates is an idol and icon in the computer world as we know it today, making him one of the people worth knowing. would like to thank you for listening to this episode of the People Worth Knowing podcast. I want to invite you to visit us online at peopleworthknowing.com. You can find us on all of our social media sites by links on our website. Thanks for listening today to People Worth Knowing. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the People Worth Knowing podcast with Nick Harrison. Connect with us at peopleworthknowing.com, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and more, so you'll never miss an episode. If you found value in this podcast, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help too. 
We will be back with another episode soon.